and welcome to Ponda Podcasts. I'm Jacqueline Ogilvie, Developmental Pediatrician from London, Ontario. Today I'm talking with Dr. Rupu Minhas, Developmental Pediatrician and Assistant Professor in the Department of Pediatrics at St. Michael's Hospital, Unity Health in Toronto. Dr. Minhas works with the Inner City Health Program at St. Mike's Hospital and has an interest in identifying interventions to support the developmental potential of children within the context of their social determinants of health. He, has a, he is a passionate clinician, celebrated teacher, and a dedicated advocate for his patients. He's recently published two articles, one in the British Medical Journal, one in the Globe and Mail, to shine light on the importance of school for children with disability and exceptional learning needs during the COVID pandemic. He's here today to talk more about this and the disparities that have become acutely apparent during this time, as well as some of the things we should be talking about as a broader community to address the gaps. Ripu, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So let's get started and talk about what school means for children with disability and exceptional learning needs in particular. In your Globe article, I think you talk about uh, schools as hubs and real access points to therapy. Tell us more what you meant by that. Um, so I think the pandemic has really reminded us, especially during these school closures when schools are not accessible, how they are so much more than classrooms and chalkboards. Um, and in particular for, for families of individuals with developmental disabilities, um, they're a place where uh, students can access therapies, where they can um, practice some of the skills that they've been working on in those therapies. Um, I'm thinking of social skills in particular, communication skills. Right. Um, they're a place also for um, um, engagement in mental health supports, um, both for students and also for families and provide respite for families as well. Um, and some of the therapies that I was mentioning earlier could be things like um, behavior therapy, uh, occupational physiotherapy, speech therapy as well, um, interacting with social workers and psychologists. Um, there's really a myriad of, of services and programs that are there. And even being in a special education classroom is an intervention of its own um, and is, right. is of therapeutic benefit and is an evidence-based intervention. And so when we take students out of those classrooms, we're really disrupting these very carefully curated therapeutic programs that have been put, put together for them. That's right. And it's really hard to translate that to uh, an internet connection. It's just not quite the same. And I, I certainly have heard that across a couple of podcasts now that really that's the theme. Schools are so much more. Um, and uh, and highlighting that the access to therapy, I think, is a real acute point that you brought up, because I don't know if everybody really um, appreciates that's how our system is set up for school aged children, that there really isn't redundancy for them to get therapy elsewhere all the time, unless they're linked to a special program, for example, but on a whole. Yeah. Uh, so how have these services um, and supports really been impacted during COVID or I guess more precisely, how have the children been impacted during COVID? Uh, yeah, and in speaking with my patients and even with some of the research that we're, we've been doing in, in gathering some of the narratives and the stories and experiences of families that we work with, we're hearing that it's really been a huge disruption. It has from a, especially for, for students and families who benefit from sameness, um, mm -hmm. from having routines. Right. Um, it's really been a huge change. Um, families are citing that they feel their, their, their children are having developmental regressions. Um, and 
I, I could see that some of those skills could be lost or um, off track um, because the, the environment has changed, the opportunity to work with therapists to maintain those skills or to continue building those skills has changed um, as well. So um, I guess one of those key things is that, that disruption. So in services, in um, parental supports as well. And so we're hearing from families that children are struggling, um, that students of all age are struggling um, in, in these skills that they had worked so hard to acquire. Um, and with that, there is increased um, responsibility or burden um, on um, families then um, trying to figure out how to, to, to continue um, supporting their, their, their children along this journey, especially when we know there are very time sensitive periods of development when, when it's important to be able to access these services and these programs as well. So that's really been a huge theme in what we've been in what we've been hearing. And I certainly have seen some of that in my practice uh, in the preschool clinic that I run um, and uh, saw some of the skills um, come back when there was opportunities to re-engage again. But did, did you see that or, or uh, did you, how long did you see it took for kids if they got back into a program or, or did they start to rebuild those skills? You know, cause it's also that cost of go, how you have to rebuild again. What, what was your experience and what did you hear from families? Yeah, so it depends on the, of course, the skill and the age and stage of the child. Right. Um, but uh, it has been, um, I've been seeing that for families that have been able to re-engage with services um, or get back into the classroom, that the children did benefit from, um, actually the whole family unit benefited from, from that re-engagement. Um, and you see some of those skills do come back. Um, it's been, having said that though, I feel like there are, there are many families where that re-engagement still hasn't happened. And now we're here we are amidst the second wave You're right? Um, where it was either families feeling not comfortable due to various reasons, including medical complexity yeah. um, of themselves or of the student themselves, where they haven't felt comfortable um, going back to in-person learning um, or others where they haven't been able to engage in the same sort of way with therapy, um, where it may be that the therapy is being delivered in a virtual format, um, which is something that I think our whole discipline is still learning about in terms of what the right way is to, to do that and, and what the strategies ought to be because the evidence just isn't there. Um, but for those, those that are able to engage with those therapies, it's different. So whether it's virtual or even with um, a therapist or a provider who's there, but now masked and face shielded um, and trying to teach you social skills or trying to teach you communication when you can't even really see their, their mouth and lips move as well. So it's just such a different way of doing things. But um, for those that have been able to re-engage um, in, in a meaningful way, um, we've been seeing that uh, some of those gains are coming back nicely. You're right. And that's a good point, because I can think of families who really are uncomfortable kind of going back. And I can think of one family I spoke to last week who just said, I'm not going back until this is over. And I think as time goes on, you know, I maybe I would have thought about that a little differently uh, this time last year. But um, as more time goes on, I don't know what over means anymore. Um, and, and how do we move forward uh, so that we're not just in a holding pattern or waiting pattern for some of these kids? I do worry. Yeah. And I, I think that's been... Some, some of my frustration as a, as a provider in this area, kind of looking at we're in the second wave and really what, what have we learned um, and applied really 
um, now that we're we're going through another round of school closures in Ontario, um, and and what's what's really different or not. Um, and so that that's something I know that's been on my mind as we've gone into this, and I'm hearing the same stories, and our and our patient families are encountering many of the same challenges. It's true, absolutely. Now, from your work with the inner city health program, can you describe some of the disparities there that you've seen? So how are some families really disproportionately affected by the restrictions that we certainly have to follow for public health guidelines, especially with the new concerns around uh, variants coming out? Um, we we want to respect obviously those, those guidelines, but what are the differences and the gaps that you're seeing for certain populations? So following, following some of these public health guidelines has been really problematic for some of our patient families in the inner city. Um, some of it is um, related to uh, someone in the household being an essential worker, um, working. Um, I have one family where mom is a PSW um, and there are four children um, at home. And so if they're not at school, which that used to be the time that she would be at work um, right. and her social networks um, are also now have, have disintegrated in a way um, because we're asked to stay within our households or our bubbles or whatever um, at, at a specific period of time. Um, and so it's hard for her to rely on other, other community members or family members to provide support with childcare, particularly for, for those children that have um, um, special needs around their care. Um, and so, um, so we're seeing challenges with families who are, who are working on front lines in various ways um, for those that have um, medical complexity themselves um, and um, have to have to to figure out how they're going to navigate their own healthcare maintenance, um, and also for families that have um, uh, challenges with addictions or mental health mm -hmm. uh, themselves. And many many um, a lot of that we're seeing further exacerbated by stressors, including. Um, the worry about illness and contracting COVID itself, um, how it's impacting family members, um, and also finances and the, the economy as well. So I think I think many families are having a hard time following some of some of those guidelines when their lived reality is that they have to leave home to work. Um, one of the schools that we work very closely with is is in a block which is. I think is surrounded by about 14 high rise buildings. Mm. And um, so many of those families have a really hard time figuring out how to get their children to school in a way where you're not going to be crowded in an elevator in the morning on right. the way downstairs to get yep. as well. So these sorts of things, which, which are just a different, a different reality um, than, than other parts of our community and our population. Absolutely. And, really families have been tasked with a big ask uh, these past few weeks with moving their children online. And even to your point, uh, you know, living in a, an apartment with um, two bedrooms, for example, I know I've got families who are struggling with where do they do school <laughs> when you've got four children in that setup. Um, but uh, I know teachers have really tried hard to engage and have really gone above and beyond seeing my own children's uh, classrooms and, and pretty impressive mm -hmm. how they figured out the chat room and sharing emojis, little things like that. But I have also on the other side seen patients with ADHD or learning disabilities where it's a, a, real, um, a real challenge. How have you been helping families um, in those situations to navigate the online platform? 
Um, so I think early on, one of the first challenges was making sure that families were able to connect with device, device enough devices and having um, reliable internet or Wi-Fi access. Right. And so that involved some advocacy and working with our schools and the school boards to make sure that they were able to access that. Um, I think along with that, we've been talking a lot to families about um, speaking up when they have a question um, where it can be hard to, to, to ask the teacher, hey, when was that assignment due um, for my child? Because I missed that. Or um, we're having a hard time navigating this online learning platform. Um, can, can, you, can you provide some support with that as well? And we really are emphasizing to a lot of families, including, I mean, my own lived experience as a dad as well, is, um, is to, to, to just remind yourself that this is new to all of us, um, to the students, to families, to teachers as well. Um, and um, things may not be perfect, but let's do our best to keep our children engaged as much as possible with learning. Um, and when there are um, IEPs or individual education plans or special um, learning um, plans or accommodations that have been put in place in the in-person learning setting. Um, I've really encouraged families to connect with their teaching staff or their therapy team uh, to look at how best to translate that to a virtual setting. Um, it's so tricky and especially with diagnoses like ADHD, um, ASD, um, certainly with our students that have LDs and intellectual disabilities as well. It's so hard when, we, as we were saying earlier, you've got these carefully crafted learning spaces, um, which, which now you're trying to put onto a screen. Um, and so that, that's something really we've been asking families to just to, 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 to speak up, to advocate for themselves. And we've been involved with some of that as well to work with their teaching teams and their therapy teams to try to do the best they can to, to, to move that over. Um, but uh, it's, been, it's been so tricky. It's good advice though to our fellow colleagues as well. And, and think about those foundations. It's like new foundations we have to be thinking about for the online environment. Do you have the right device? Do you have the right connection? And then do you have the comfort or to reach out to the school? Because I know for some parents, school is a it's a hard place for them to navigate and whether that be from their own lived experience of going through school. Um, so it might not be just second nature to send an email to the principal or send an email to the learning support teacher. And that's something I have seen helping. I've certainly started taking on more of that when I, in practice, even as a through school meetings and school connections and liaison for sure. Um, little bits where we can. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's been a really important part of the advocacy we've been able to do um, in, in recent months, um, whether it's me or our general pediatrics colleague or our social workers um, working with um, families to try to connect with schools or, around that. Um, and we've put together a bit of a, almost like a, a COVID review of systems um, in, a, in a way where we do look at, do you have access to your device? Do you have access to Wi-Fi? Oh, interesting. Uh, how are yep. you feeling about all of this? But also, um, um, how, how are you doing in terms of food security? Um, do you have someone who is able to help you with that? Um, uh, how are you doing in terms of your own mental health as a, as a parent or caregiver as well? Do you have supports there? Because um, it's just such a different landscape that we're all trying to navigate right now. Good points, all really good points. And have you seen any really innovative solutions or situations that stand out to you for how accommodations have been offered? 
Um, so, so I, I know a few teachers have been um, during break time will put music on over the classroom. So um, even if the the student is in a small space at home where they're not able to say get out to their backyard or get some fresh air outside, um, then they can try to get some physical activity there. Um, uh, I know parents have been trying to keep, um, whether we like them or not, fidget toys and other sorts right. of manipulatives that they can have close by um, as well. From a programming standpoint, um, I, I've seen many schools try to create some one-on-one -on -one time for for students um, with their online instructor. Um, um, so I think there's various ways that people trying to that people are trying to navigate this. The and with the, in recent weeks, especially since um, the winter break and now in January of 2021, um, we've been seeing more special education classrooms open up. Um, in person as well um, for for families who are opting for that option. So I, I think there are some things that that we are learning and trying to adapt, um, which is building more equity as opposed to having a very broad sweeping school closure. Um, rather, I think I think we are starting to look a little bit more at what are the, the more tailored needs of, of students. I agree, and I was happy to hear that a lot of our services through the Children's Treatment Centers, for example, were deemed as essential services, so they were continue, able to continue. Um, so I'd like to talk about maybe the early intervention programs a bit. To the, we've talked a bit about school age and, and toddlers and preschools, because preschoolers have also been um, affected. I know you talked about that as well in your Globe article around um, these are key years for brain development and intervention. Um, what have you been seeing for your families and patients? Uh, what have they been saying for their toddlers and preschools who are maybe we've really shifted to a parent coaching online model for those services? So again, it's it's been the 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 patients that need the most support that are having the hardest time in accessing that type of intervention. Um, so. Um, especially for um, for for patients who are not able to pay attention to a screen or engage in that sort of way, um, working with the therapist directly through a screen is not is not really um, happening. Is certainly not for long periods of time, and so it is now um, falling into the parent or caregivers. Um, scope of practice now in a way right. um, <laughs> to do that. And I, I think many families have really been running with it, have been trying to, to build their skills and are um, finding, um, are feeling more comfortable with aspects of it. Being able to check back in with the therapist has been really helpful, which is, which has been great for families who have difficulty in, so for parents and caregivers who have difficulty in engaging in that way because of um, various limitations, whether it's due to language or um, developmental challenges of their own or functional challenges of their own, um, I do see them struggling more. In terms of, I think one of, aside from the virtual therapy piece, um, one of the other big challenges that I've, um, that a lot of families have been citing is the challenge of finding in-person therapies. Um, so if they are brand new, um, have been recently received a diagnosis, um, and I'm thinking particularly for autism spectrum disorder or global developmental delay. Um, families are having a really hard time um, in, in accessing in-person um, programming, which 
And I think in particular for families who have um, a specific budget, so for example, through the Ontario Autism Program, um, they're struggling with, do we really want to use this funding for virtual therapy if we're not sure that's the best um, kind of bang for our buck in terms of um, developmental supports? And that's so hard to counsel around because these are the, the evidence which we often turn to as, as professionals mm-hmm. is not there. Um, so that I think has been one of the bigger challenges. Um, so looking for, for folks who can do in-person therapy um, and um, has that list has been so limited um, and then trying to, to kind of divide out um, would the, the, the merits of virtual versus um, in-person interventions. That's true. I think even with the new Ontario Autism Program as providers and clinicians, we were still trying to get our head around around helping families how to spend a budget and, and finding therapies now that they were driving the bus in that regard. And now we're being asked to kind of interpret virtual has been thrown into that mix. And as you said, the evidence, there's nothing for us to kind of hold on to, to, to provide direction. I would say I've also got some families who tried the virtual, did some blocks of that and feel like They've now moved beyond that. They don't want to re-put more money and time into that modality. And we locally here have really struggled to find those um, more hands-on in-person providers, which is, and and now that when they are opening up, wait lists are quite long. So it's it's a bit of a domino effect, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. In Toronto, we're seeing the same um, as well. And it's leading to families feeling frustrated, um, abandoned a bit, um, because I think we put so much emphasis on um, early identification, diagnosis, intervention, and now um, many families have been in a holding pattern, um, I mean, some since March last year. Um, and so um, here we are coming up to almost a year mm-hmm. um, to put such an emphasis on these critical developmental periods, right, where you, where we really do want that, those interventions to happen. So I think that's leading to some frustration um, um, with families as well kind of being stuck in this situation. I know I had one family who participated in a social communication course online. The one program that they had found really helpful because there was uh, some opportunity where they now they had the ability to do this, but videoed themselves um, doing the play with their child. And then they got feedback from their their coach. And so they, they found that that was as close as they could get kind of in the current situation to getting a bit more interactive and, and hands-on with their kiddo. So... Which leads me to um, ask you a little bit about uh, innovations and things um, that you might see us adapting our online world so that it does work for more people and more uh, of our families that we see. Have you, in your searches in the, the literature or the um, your endeavors to look at interventions for children in different contexts, any big um, ideas or thoughts that we should be having our sights set on? Um, so, I, so one thing I, is really around parental supports, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm hearing a lot from um, families that they're benefiting from um, group supports online. So, although we're not able to connect um, in person, um, certainly at, at this point in time, um, with supportive communities. Um, there has been a new space created for more virtual supports for parents um, and opportunities for networking. That's a lot of what we've been hearing for fam- from families is that they feel um, very isolated, um, including from their own 
more organic networks in terms of family and, and neighbors and whatnot. And so, um, and that their experience of the pandemic has been so different as caregivers of, um, of uh, children or youth with developmental disabilities. And um, so being able to connect with other families and being able to share their learnings um, it has, has been helpful. So um, I'm hearing about that from families and that I think these hubs are being created through some of the these service provision agencies. Um, so I think that's something like like every other aspect of our life right now, kind of switching to virtual. Um, I think that's that's something that's that's been helpful what we're hearing from families. I think there's more more research to be done in that area, but it's it's providing um, something that seems really needed for families right now. That's good. I think, yeah, peer-to-peer -peer support, whether that be for youth. Uh, I know I've, some connections have been happening that way and also for parents for support. So how do we tap into those, that expertise that they're starting to develop as caregivers and providers? I'm hearing you sound like you're doing some research to get the caregiver experience of it as well. Um, anything you can share uh, in that regard? Um, I think, I think this is the, the pandemic has really reminded us of, or at least the, the responses to the pandemic in our policies and the decisions that are being made have really reminded us that we need to have more representation voices at the table when those conversations are happening. And so when it was March of 2020 and we were in kind of emergency mode as we were trying to figure out what to do, I think that was a very different place or it should have been from where we are now and I think it's really important to factor in um, the experiences, the barriers, the strengths of various communities that are otherwise marginalized um, in this decision-making process. And so um, in particular, I'm hearing such rich experiences um, and narratives from the families that we work with about what works, what doesn't work, um, and and how that should really be put into some of the decision-making processes so that we can have therapy and support programs and educational programs that are pandemic-proof. I like that. <laughs> and I think it's really underscored for us how we really need to be improving our virtual capacity. So in telemedicine, teleeducation, teletherapy, um, and especially, I mean, I, I'm hoping that there are some things here whenever, if there is this kind of fabled post-pandemic world, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> whenever we're in that sort of place, mm -hmm. um, I hope there are some aspects of this that we can learn from and keep in terms of improving um, accessibility, but certainly giving more voice to um, the, the individuals that have that lived experience and can help inform um, more equitable decision-making um, when, when we're in this sort of dire situation. So true, because I, I know there's some pretty cutting edge stuff in terms of rehab robots and uh, definitely some centers over in Europe make use of this already and, and kids love it um, because it's cool. It looks like R2-D2. And, um, but yeah, making sure that uh, kids even are involved in, in whether that's a, a feasible thing to do and then how does it actually get used by the the, by the families who most needs to needs to get to are these things virtual reality or um, feels like potentials potentials there if we can just kind of envision it and put some resources there to to make it work for all. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot in terms of um, virtual reality and AI um, that can really be leveraged. Um, I think also very quickly within Ontario and many parts of the world, we shifted overnight into virtual care where whenever these conversations were happening earlier, there were so many barriers that seemed to be in place. And so increasing access in, in these different ways, I think is really helpful um, for families. And um, as I was saying, I hope there are some things that we're learning um, that, we can, that we can apply um, in the future as well. Need a, if not at least the mindset that these things are possible, that they can happen relatively quickly when we need them to do, when we need them to, so. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask uh, in a few more minutes that we have left is, uh, it's shifting gears a bit, but how have you adapted your practice to kind of assess children? I think some of our general pediatrics colleagues would probably love to hear um, some of our own challenges in trying to address school problems in this climate. Um, any pearls that you'd uh, share or observations, even just experiences? Yeah, um, I'm not sure about pearls, um, but in terms of uh, the the way that we have shifted, um, so I think many developmental pediatrics assessments usually start off with a kind of a two to three visit process. Um, our initial visit used to be um, history taking and observation of the child and the family um, that we're doing um, virtually right now. So either by telephone or by video. Um, at that point, we are assessing whether it would make sense for them to come in for a, their second visit, which is usually some sort of standardized assessment. Um, so commonly the ADOS or something like the Mullen Skills of Early Learning um, to look at um, their skills in more of a standardized way. Um, and so that the, those assessments were kind of grouping to certain days, which are happening in person, um, giving lots of time in between to wipe mm -hmm. up all of the toys <laughs> as well. Oh and yeah, do, yep. Um, and, then, um, and then feedbacks are mostly happening um, virtually as well. Um, that has been really challenging, especially when the feedback is, the feedback visit is sharing um, a diagnosis that can be really um, hard for families to take in. And so doing that by telephone or doing that by a Zoom call um, has, um, has been really challenging when we, when we usually put so much time um, into planning out really how that conversation can be most supportive and helpful for families. Um, and uh, so I think that's, that's a big gap that we're still trying to figure out the, how, how, how does that translate in a way that is supportive for families to a virtual sort of format. Um, the other thing that families have had a hard time with, um, and I think as providers, we feel we've, we've been talking about in our, in our, Clinic, feeling kind of uncomfortable with it is is also just having one person for that fam for with that child come in at a time because we're trying to minimize um, traffic in the waiting room um, as well and so um, if we're having a challenging conversation um, then or a difficult conversation it can be hard for for a parent to come in without having their partner or support person with them um, as well. So I think those are some areas where we're still trying to grow, but that's that's kind of where we're at right now. We are using some, um, some uh, tools 
kind of modified or adapted to virtual delivery. So um, okay. it might be it, like aspects of autism assessments, um, particularly for younger children um, that we've been trying to do through, um, through video conferencing. Um, and so there are some tools that are being adapted for that or, um, or have been that were created for that, but were maybe more screening tools and now are, are kind of being upgraded so we can use them for more diagnostic purposes as well. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been really tricky trying to figure out how to, um, how to transfer that into, into a virtual space. It has, and I've even found it, part of our assessments is often to get information from so many, from different observers too. And with kids uh, having limited opportunity to be in their childcare or with their therapist, um, it's real kind of head scratcher to sometimes figure out where you're gonna get that information or or you might not get it at this point. So um, sometimes, yeah, it was spreading out some of those assessments over time to make sure you get a really good snapshot. And same, um, I mean, with uh, ADHD, um, kind of the, the diagnostic piece, it's so important to have input from teachers, both on the initial diagnosis, but then also when we're titrating therapy yeah. as well. So with medications. Um, and so when it's in a virtual space or even in person, when the, the norms of what, what you're expected to do within a classroom has now changed so much as well. Right. Um, There's no norm for how long to sit in an online <laughs> classroom. Yes, exactly. So it's been um, it's been challenging to try to figure out um, really what what is how much of an impairment are these symptoms causing or how how prominent are they um, and especially if um, our teachers are not in the same room um, and able to to observe and weigh in in the same way as as they used to so total uh, yeah very very different space that we're trying to navigate um, as yeah. clinicians. Lots, lots to learn, lots more questions too, to try to, to sort out. So it sounds like people are all wrestling with similar, similar challenges and uh, uh, across, across the province. Um, well, Ripu, it's been a real pleasure talking with you this afternoon and hearing about your, your experiences and your reflections. Um, in the last minute, is there anything else you'd like to uh, comment on that I haven't asked you about? Um, nothing else. Thank you so much, though, for making space for this conversation. I think many of us are, are trying to navigate this. Um, so if there are lessons that we can share, it's, I, think, I think that'll be helpful to us as a community. I agree. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us as well. Uh, this is Ponda Podcast. Take care.